You're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The State Office of Elections has been a beehive of activity as of late. It bounced back after a challenge to reapportionment earlier this year that left potential candidates not sure which office to run for. Now another candidate deadline is upon us. There's five and a half hours left to go. 4.30 this afternoon is when those with political aspirations have to file their papers. Scott Nago, the state's chief election officer, says you'd be surprised how many election hopefuls wait to the last minute and get jammed up if they don't have enough signatures on their nomination papers. And they can't just run out before 4.30 to try and collect more. Nago says it happens more often than you think. So it's important that you have the requisite amount of signatures from voters that are in the district. A lot of times candidates, especially with reapportionment, redistricting, the lines have moved, so voters may not be in the same district anymore. So it's important that you have the right amount of signatures plus a little extra so that you will be able to file for office. Because once they start the process, what, they cannot leave the office to go collect more signatures? signatures. Not after 4.30 p.m., no. Wow. Okay. So so you're dealing with that uh, now? Lots of questions coming in from candidates? Oh, we're just getting with a a lot of people coming in to file which is a good sign. That means a lot of people will be on the ballot. This year, all 76 legislators are up for um, election. That includes all senators. Normally, we, we would have a staggered uh, 12 and 13, but this year, because of redistricting, all 25 senators are up for election. So how's your staff doing? <laughs> uh, they're, they're doing really well. I mean, this is it's a veteran staff, season staff, so this is this is really just the beginning for them and they know it. And uh, we do have the finish line, you know, in November, but lay out the schedule for what voters can expect. So right now, voters should have already received the yellow card. If um, the, the yellow card lets you know which contest you will be voting in. Also, it lets you know that you are a registered voter. Uh, if you haven't received your yellow card, uh, you should contact your um, you should contact your clerk's office to see, to see what's up with your registration, or you can go on to our website at elections.hawaii.gov to the online voter registration. Um, it's important to note that ballots are not affordable, so if you did move or um, updated your address, you need to update it with the registration system, which you can go online to do if you have a Hawaii driver's license or a Hawaii state ID or fill out an application. At, a new voter registration form and send it in. So that's key. If you haven't got the yellow cards, contact the city clerk's office Correct. and follow up. Yes. Um, and then w- what is your plan going forward? July 26 is when ballots should be hitting homes. One of the new things this year is you can track your ballot if you go to our website, elections.hawaii.gov. We have a ballot track where you can sign up to receive notifications of where your ballot is in the process, emails or text alerts. And, you know, in the past, we have had a lot of apathy. And I don't know, with with so many races up and so many people changing their minds about what race they're going to run in, I don't know. Do you think that's going to help interest? It's really hard to say. There seems to be a lot of interest in the elections this year. Whether or not that translates to uh, voter turnout um, remains to be seen. Um, we did see a high, higher than usual voter turnout last year because of elections by mail. We want to stress to voters that Hawaii is a vote-by-mail state. You didn't receive your ballot in the mail last election just because it was COVID. Um, From here forward, we will be voting by mail. Okay. And we did have some issues uh, arise that more people, you know, wanted more places where they could actually cast their ballots because we saw long lines at the end there. So there there will be voter service centers set set up throughout the counties. the hours may differ, so to get the nearest location near 
nearest you, I, I would recommend you go to elections.hawaii.gov. We also have uh, ballot drop boxes um, set up around the island where you can drop off your, your completed voted ballot at one of these drop boxes rather than mailing it in. But ballots must be received by 7 p.m. on election day, not postmarked. And how many more service centers are you setting up compared to the well, last election? It, it just depends on which county. I'm in Honolulu. I know they're going to open up one on the windward side, not for the entire um, duration of the voter service centers, but they're going to open up one on the windward side and one on Wahiwa, and they're going to rotate that. Now, I saw long lines out on the west side, Kapolei area. Yes. Are we doing anything there? Uh, we still have the Kapolei Voter Service Center. So voters can still go to Kapolei to cast their ballot in person. We do recommend you don't wait till the last day. Uh, that's when we saw the long lines. Um, if you if you looked at the date, just one day prior to uh, election day, there was no wait at all at any of those voter service centers. Okay, so is there going to be um, any campaign or messaging so that we can entice our voters to show up yes, early? Yes, as we get closer, we will be letting voters know um, that where they can vote in person. But if they really want to know now, they can go to our website, elections.hawaii.gov, to, to see the list of where those voter service centers will be. Okay. So July, you're sending out uh, the first batch? Mm-hmm. If you're a registered voter, you automatically get your ballot in the mail starting uh, July 26. Fill out your ballot, make sure you sign the return envelope and drop it back in the mail or take it to a place of deposit. Or if you want to vote in person, you can vote at a voter service center. And there may be people who, you know, like to wait to the last minute just to see how the campaigns are and if uh, any issues arise where they might want to change their vote, even though they, they've supported one candidate over another. Yeah, so we uh, recommend that you, if you are going to wait to the last minute, you use a place of deposit or a Dropbox to, to um, send your ballot back. Because, like I said, ballots need to be received by close of voting, which is 7 p.m. on election day, not postmark. And then uh, how many more drop boxes will there be this election? You know, I'm not really sure. Those are set up by the counties. I'm not sure what the increase was from the last election, but I do know we have a list at our webs- on our website at elections.hawaii.gov. You can also track your ballot, uh, a new feature. Like I said, you can track your ballot uh, coming to you as well as after you voted it and mail it. So once you um, vote your ballot, you can track it at our website, and you can also download your virtual um, high-voted sticker. And then do you need more volunteers? No, because we're um, elections by mail. We don't have to worry about um, polling, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that was, you know, one thing that was a concern during uh, during COVID, right? Because a lot of our volunteers traditionally have been older and more at risk. I don't know how we would have run that election if it was a polling place election in 2020, because we would have had a hard time getting officials for that main thing is voters keep their registration up to date because ballots are not affordable um, through the mail. So if you moved or changed your address, you won't, the ballot won't come to you. You need to re-register and update your registration. And if somebody fails to do that and their ballots get sent somewhere else? The ballot will be returned to the clerk's office and then um, they will start the process of flagging them as a uh, questionable address, and they won't be receiving a ballot in the future until they re-register. Okay. All right. Is that something that can be fixed, though, if, if before the primary? Yes. You would just have to re-register. As long as you re-register, you'll be able to vote. So you'll never um, be shut out from voting. As far as, like, printing up the ballots, anything different on that on your end? No, nothing different no. on... No new equipment or anything like that? I mean, we're, we're having new county vote county equipment, but it's fairly um, seamless for the voter. 
That was Hawaii's Chief Elections Officer Scott Nago talking to us this morning about what's around the corner with the primary election coming up in August. Candidates for office have until the close of business today to file, uh, so we'll know who's running uh, for what office. All 76 positions at the state legislature are up for grabs. Expansion is brewing for a popular craft beer business on the Valley Isle. Maui Brewing Company's beverages have seen sales surge over 50% from last year. The Kihei-based brewer has tried to make all its products in Hawaii, but to meet demand, it partnered with Denver-based Sleeping Giant Brewing Company to produce beer for the mainland. And more expansion could be on the way after Maui Brewing put in a bid for the financially troubled Modern Times beer in San Diego. But the road to surging sales hasn't been easy. Supply chain issues have impacted the business, although co-founder and CEO Garrett Marrero says the supply chain is more incomplete than broken. It could be a lack of cans one day to a lack of dock workers another day. He spoke with HPR's Jason Ubai about meeting today's challenges. If I gave an interview at least a dozen times during COVID and I said that coming out of COVID is going to be way worse than operating in COVID, I hate to be right, but that is absolutely true. And that's just compounded by the labor market. The, the labor market is non-existent at any wage. I would push back and, and say this is where the government has not done their part. You know, and I think you know, for me, talking about 17 years of brewing history here in Hawaii, for 17 years I've been talking about affordable and workforce housing. And so have the politicians, but there just hasn't been any real action, any meaningful move to make sure that our that our residents here are taken care of. And that is a real problem. And I think that's just further exacerbating the labor issues. I know you have a partnership with Sleeping Giant Brewery. How is that partnership going and the increased distribution on the mainland? So distribution on the mainland is on fire for us as well. Uh, Also a situation where we would sell more if we had more. The arrangement with them came to be due to all of the pressures that we saw here in Hawaii, right? Not being able to get containers, cans in some cases, ingredients that were delayed four, six, eight weeks. So you're waiting to be able to brew beer even. And with our growth plans for the mainland, it starts to become unsustainable to brew that beer in Hawaii and ship it back to the mainland. I won't say haters, but naysayers would classify that as, well, how is that different than other breweries? Well, it really is because we're telling people we're doing it first. So we're transparent. You know, here's why we're in this situation. We did not make this situation come about. This is largely government and social issues that are present. We have to adapt to that because we are a business that, you know, we want to make sure our teammates are are, uh, well compensated and taken care of. So to respond to market conditions, we are producing in the mainland through another independent craft brewery. And all of our cans will say where beer is brewed. All of the cartons will have a QR code that say, if you're interested in learning more on where this particular package came from, scan this code. We are not trying to hide it and pretend like it's coming from somewhere else. You just look at cost structure, market conditions, labor, all of those things. And it forced us to make that change to be able to meet the demand that many people in the mainland want our beer for, right? So, you know, ones that that couldn't come to Hawaii for two years, right? They were missing that bikini blonde and they couldn't get it in their home market. So now that we're able to expand and do that on the mainland, 
gives our company a lot of growth trajectory. We expect to grow between 40 and 50% this year, excluding anything that we do with modern times. From a philosophical point of view, if you start producing more beer on the mainland, would you still consider Maui Brewing a Hawaii beer? Well, I think the origins are very important. Absolutely. You know, and when I say origins, it's not just the beer, but the brand. I think where other brands go wrong, you know, and I, I'm not going to dance around it. We're talking about Kona here and Primo and, and Mucho Aloha, things that purport to be from Hawaii or look like they're from Hawaii and maybe not go the step of saying they are, but those are very different than what we're doing. We will always make our beer in Hawaii. We make more beer in Hawaii than any other producer, period. And that includes Kona, right? Because let's face it, the, the, the vast majority of that beer is still coming in from the mainland, whether it says it or not on the can. For us, and, and again, they're a different business model. Like the owners of that company, very different. We respect what they do, but it's just not us. I mean, the, the amount of meetings that we have to make sure that we are transparent, that we are properly labeling, that we are accurate and not giving anyone inaccurate information, you'd be, you'd be surprised because most brands would not go to the level that we do to ensure that transparency. We continue to invest in Hawaii. And my goal was to always produce 100% in Hawaii. Market conditions have changed. The world has changed around us. We did not cause COVID. We did not cause all of these supply chain, shipping, labor, housing. These were not issues that we caused. But they're at our footstep, and we now have to respond to those to be a for-profit business. I owe it to my teammates, right? So there's two options. We grow and continue to grow. And why wouldn't we if there's such a huge demand that obviously is out there if we're growing at the rates we are, at the size we are? The other option is contraction. It's, okay, well, sit down in the room with the team and say, okay, who would like to quit, resign, or be fired? Is that good for anybody? It's not good for the company. It's not good for the bank. And it's certainly not good for our teammates that count on us for their wages, their insurance, their 401k that we match, their beer benefits, which of course are most important to everyone. So we had to have a hard look at what our options are. And this was the option. I think if, if anything, that for us to be transparent about it and talk about the beverage, you have to have it in this mindset that if people are going to buy it for a lot, a lot of different reasons. Some may buy it because it's 100% local to Hawaii. And that will be the case for Hawaii. That is the case for Hawaii. Now, if you're on the mainland and you don't want to buy it because it's not made in Hawaii, then you have zero choices for Hawaiian beer. Right. We still will export to the mainland, by the way. All of our limited releases at the moment are coming out from here. We ship a lot of beverage from here still. It's core brands that are going to be produced in the mainland for the mainland. Let's switch gears to the Modern Times bid. Why did you put the bid to acquire them? And what do you think it would do for Maui Brewing? Stepping back, I think Modern Times is a fantastic brand. They obviously had some troubles you know, financially and otherwise. They haven't been able to work the financial stuff out themselves, but the other issues that I believe were addressed fully and uh, not an issue at all, certainly weren't representative of the brand, but certain people within it. Financially, they've found themselves in a pickle. I think if everything worked perfectly, they would have been fine. But a huge growth curve, huge amount of borrowing and investment going into a pandemic, of course, no one knew that that was happening. They got caught in a pinch, right? It's almost like being in a short squeeze. You know, they just didn't have a way out. And the people there are amazing. The brand is amazing. The beer is amazing. I've known that brand since inception. I've, I've known the people there for so long. So we, we believe in it. I'm from San Diego originally. So it's nice to, you know, maybe have a foothold in our in our second largest market outside of Hawaii with a brand that's respected and in my hometown. That's the kind of the why. 
there are certain business synergies that exist, you know, whether it be scale, right? So when we go to buy cans, instead of buying 36 million cans, we're maybe buying 45 million, 50 million cans, right? So when we go to our can manufacturer, not only looking at the economies of scale from pricing, but in today's market, getting the cans, you know, we are, we command a little bit more attention. Combining our brands with our common wholesaler network in Southern California, which we already are aligned, also gives us strength with those wholesalers. What we can do with our people, being able to allow fluidity between locations and training and growing the camaraderie in craft beer and innovating to make some really cool stuff. And beyond that, the business efficiencies that come out from not only just the economies of scale, but also from an operational level, we're not quite big enough to do certain things and, you know, but we're bigger than not to have to do those things. So bringing those together, bring certain cost efficiencies into line and allow us to run two world-class manufacturing facilities and certainly be able to brew in California beyond just Sleeping Giant. You know, just touching on sustainability initiatives too, you know, this is something that we is near and dear to our heart and we continue to evolve with, not just the solar and solar thermal battery, et cetera. We have CO2 recapture from fermentation, but we're working on a system that's what they call direct air capture. So it's literally removing CO2 from the air around us. You know, these are the types of initiatives that we put into place and we will, of course, love to filter through to our other entities, you know, adding that modern times could really just be the first in an evolution for us as we continue to grow our organization. I think beyond that, when we start to focus on what's most important for our team and for the brand and for our fans, you know, really the the sustainability side has such a huge impact on our decision making that we're switching away from our recycled plastic rings. We're going to a recycled cardboard, right? So we won't have the plastic. And those you'll see coming out probably around fall. They're already being used on the mainland and here they'll be used as well. So no more plastic. So these little things like that, that will continue to change our brands. I feel we still have a lot of room to grow here in Hawaii and that's evident by our demand here. But once we hit that limit, if we were just bringing the ingredients over to convert and ship back, we're adding a ton of carbon footprint to those ingredients to then turn around and ship them to the mainland. And it does make more sense to be sustainably minded in producing in the mainland and being transparent about that. And that's something that we'll vigorously defend because we believe it's the right choice. Anyone who has an issue with that doesn't fully understand what normally happens in beer and beverages. And so for us, being transparent about it is is super important. That was Maui Brewing Company's Garrett Marrero and HPR's Jason Ubai talking about the company's expansion. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land. Outrigger.com. Mass grief, mass outrage, seemingly everywhere. But can we also learn to share in each other's joy? When you ask people to report on the empathic experiences that they have, They resonate with other people's positive feelings just as much as their negative ones, if not more. 
the science of empathetic joy and how we can experience more of it, that's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from Bishop Museum, screening the film The Healer Stones of Kapai Mahu, June 17th, with its new exhibit opening June 18th, the story of four stones and the dual male and female healing spirits within them. Bishopmuseum.org. check today. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story that may have you wondering, is this for real? Journalist Ian Lynn joins us today. Good morning, Ian. Good morning. So this story is about a standoff in Waipahu. Introduce us to uh, who we're talking about here. Well, it's a case I ran across because of the involvement of an organization called that calls themselves the Occupied Forces Hawaiian of Hawaii Army, and that kind of gives it a different spin, although um, let me just say what happened. Um, Back in September, apparently, a group of people um, moved on to a plot, a five-acre plot in an ag subdivision out above Waipahu, took it over, um, locked out the company that was leasing it and farming there, locked out the uh, legal owners, and declared themselves um, the having superior title by heirdom, like saying they were the heirs of the original descendants. That's a very dangerous idea, uh, a false idea that land title can only be transferred by genealogy to the owner's lineal descendants. That's the idea that, that this group based their takeover on, and two of the group traced their genealogy back to the a land grant back at the time of the Mahele. We're talking 170-something years ago. And uh, on the basis of that, they were claiming, and they do claim, to have superior title to be there on the land without permission of anybody else. And we've kind of uh, heard it, this argument before, right? Folks claiming have, the land is, is theirs. This is not unique. It's, uh, it's happened elsewhere. Um, these extra legal takeovers of private property have happened in all parts of the state. And it, it's putting people at risk. Um, a woman on Maui has pleaded guilty to a Class C felony of burglary, secondary burglary, after taking part in a, a similar takeover in which she was just like a drive by uh, person. Her husband got a call, can you come over and help? And she went to help, and the people told her, go in the house, lock yourself in the house. And she did. And she's now convicted of burglary, something that's going to, you know, mess up her life for a while. Um, it's it's hard to say. Uh, now, with the a uniformed force that says it's a non-combatant army, but nonetheless um, taking up these cases and giving them support, uh, really. Uh, it's a new kind of problem going forward, I think. So the owner is probably saying, wait a minute, this is, you know, my property, uh, and you guys are squatters. Uh, and- yes, and well, they've gone to court. The two court cases, you know, courts take a long time, and they bend over backwards, especially when uh, 
there are parties in the case that aren't represented by attorneys, and that's been the case here, representing the squatters um, on their own. Um, and courts, you know, try and give them every possible chance to make their case, even though they don't know the rules. So this is supposed to be a medical marijuana farm, and then these, these squatters have just moved in. They're claiming whatever sovereign rights, you know, they're heirs to this property, and it, it, it sounds like it's going to come to a head. It, it is. The, the courts are actually the um, the judge in the circuit court has already granted a motion for summary judgment. However, the paperwork to um, issue eviction notices and get those all properly uh, distributed um, and giving the defendants a chance to object to any particular phrasing in them, that's all going on now. So one, once those are those are completed and the judge has signed off on them, um, yeah, it's push comes to shove. I should say, though, you know, the terrible thing is that makes me so sad is some of these participants, I really admire so much about them. They're passionate about the needs to improve the lives of modern Hawaiians. You know, they're articulate. They're unafraid to stand up uh, to authority. Um, they're willing to sacrifice for their communities. These are admirable qualities, and yet somehow they're wrapped up in this totally fraudulent, bogus worldview that um, sets them apart and undermines what they what they think they're doing. Yeah, and and some of these claims of what allodial title to the land. I mean, those have been thrown out in court, you know, by other groups. Um, the, the FBI has identified allodial title as one of those things used by uh, groups on the mainland in the anti-government fringe, the sovereign citizen groups. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of those debunked myths that um, still hangs around. And you have to wonder, I wonder, where are these people being taught that this is the, this is the truth? Because they, they appear to really believe they're the owners and it's their private property, and they're shocked that someone would come and try and throw them out. All right. Well, we'll just have to keep an eye on this occupied forces Hawaii Army. Uh, but Absolutely. Thank, thanks so much, Ian. <laughs> okay. Thank you. That was reporter Ian Lynn with today's Reality Check. You can read the story online at civilbeat.org. How do you protect your ocean resources and nearshore fisheries? The group Kipahulu Ohana has been in touch with fishermen in the community to develop rules to create a community-based subsistence fishing area in order to protect marine life living along roughly 5.7 miles of coastline. HPR's Lillian Song sat down with the group's executive director, Scott Crawford, about the work that began over a decade ago. We developed our Malami Kekai Community Action Plan from 2010 to 2012, and out of that, one of the priorities that we identified was to seek designation of Kipuhulu Moku as a community-based subsistence fishing area. So since then, we've been working on doing outreach with fishermen and other community stakeholders and users to develop the rules that we're proposing to be implemented and to designate Kipuhulu Moku as a CBSFA. So it's one of the state designations for fisheries management. 
And it's the only designation that really embraces communities as co-management partners with the Division of Aquatic Resources. So the proposal was really put forward by the community, driven by the community from a bottom-up approach. And it also emphasizes the importance of traditional practices and the sustainability of the Hawaiian lifestyle, not just the abundance of the resources themselves. That being the case, go ahead and highlight some of the rule changes that community stakeholders have been talking to you about and would like to see implemented in this area. Yeah, the rules fall into several different categories. There's bag limits, size limits, seasonal limits, and gear limits. And some examples would be there's a 10 fin fish limit combined for a kule, non-commercial take only. For omilu, there's a two bag limit and also adding a maximum size to fish like omilu and moi, um, which is called a slot limit, so that it leaves the largest individuals to reproduce. There's also some invertebrate rules. Opihi, lobster uh, for opihi, setting a bag limit and also a slot limit. Then some of the gear rules is things like no take opihi while free diving and no take while night diving. Okay. I hear you talk about the new bag limits. I get that, size limits. But what is a slot limit? A slot limit is like a minimum and maximum. So basically you are allowed to catch fish within a certain size range. And right now the state rules only have minimum limits. The concept of a prime spawner is really important, that the largest fish of a species, especially the largest females, are the most reproductively successful. They have the most eggs and they also have the most healthy fatty eggs that are most likely to survive. So by leaving the largest fish, and we have this tendency of sort of trophy hunting or, you know, IG fishing that fishermen like to catch the biggest fish and sort of show that off, but really the most sustainable way to fish is to leave the biggest ones because those are the ones that contribute the most to the future healthy population. And if we're always hunting, fishing for the biggest ones, we're actually over time creating an overall smaller population of fish. We want to just make sure that the prime spawners are able to survive and reproduce for the next generation and not have the population overall just get smaller and smaller over time. So it's really important to leave the larger ones, and we identified omilu and moi as two fish that especially are subject to this, and it's important to put a a slot limit so that there's a maximum size as well as a minimum size. But that makes sense. And if there were no rules in place, then people, they're like, well, you know, nobody's telling us not to. Yeah. And we understand that a lot of this, one of the questions that always comes up is like, how is this going to be enforced? You know, especially out in Kipuhulu, where we're a long ways from DOCARE. There's no DOCARE officers out here. Mm -hmm. And DOCARE is the Division of Conservation and Resources Enforcement. Right. So a lot of it is really about education and about outreach and just creating a conversation so that people understand the reasons behind the rules 
and want to comply with the rules because they understand that they make sense. And this is how we ensure that there's fish for our children, our grandchildren in the future. Well, Scott, there is just this fascinating tidbit, too, though, for you yourself. You were part of the Kipahulumoku because you were working on the Malka side. Yeah, well, our nonprofit organization, Kipahulu Ohana, basically our original project that the organization got started around was managing a traditional wetland taro farm called Kapahu Living Farm that is managed through a cooperative agreement with Haleakala National Park in the Kipuhulu section of the park. But as, you know, everybody knows, the idea of the Ahupua'a connection is that what happens up in the Mauka section affects the Makai area, and everything is connected. And we felt that in order to have a, a sort of integrated Ahupua'a management approach, we needed to work on the Makai section of the Moku as well. So that's when, around 2010, we started developing our Malama Ikekai action plan, and then from out of that grew the community-based subsistence fishing area proposal. Hmm. And then there is going to be that virtual public scoping session coming up. What are you hoping to see come out of this? Well, really, it's just an opportunity for fishermen and women and stakeholders, uh, users of the area, to just give feedback on the specific rules. That's what we want more than anything is just, you know, comments whether people like the rules and the reasons why they think they support them and why they make sense, or if there's places where they have issues or think they could be improved, then we'd like to hear that as well. And this is an opportunity for Division of Aquatic Resources to just have input from users before finalizing the rules package that will be sent to the Board of Land and Natural Resources uh, to go into the formal rulemaking process. Okay, and Scott, after this meeting, what's that timeline? Will these ideas then just be talked over again, or will they be implemented? What's that time frame? Well, the next step after this public scoping meeting will be to go to the Board of Land and Natural Resources and request a public hearing. And this meeting on Tuesday is kind of an informal meeting just to gather input. But then once it enters into the official sort of Chapter 91 rulemaking process, administrative rulemaking process, then it'll go to the Board of Land and Natural Resources and request a public hearing. And then we'll have a public hearing. And then after that, it'll go back to the Board again for final approval. And... There's a lot of communities around the islands that are looking at how they can manage their own nearshore areas in a sustainable way, and it really takes people in their own areas to get involved and get active. And in Kipuhulu, we're just one small place, but we're hoping that we can set an example that others can look at and, and follow the process to be able to take care of all of our shorelines in a way that keeps the fish there for us to be able to enjoy in the future. Great to know that you have really been in touch with the public stakeholders who are vested in the Kupahulu Community-Based Subsistence Fishing Area. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Scott. Know that you are really vested along with your community in the moku that you are stewarding. And one final question. Tomorrow is World Ocean Day, but uh-huh. you, you as an engaged citizen, is there a message you would like to share with our listeners? 
well, basically, we can all make a difference in our own areas. And we can't wait for the, you know, agencies, the state or federal agencies to make solutions for us. In our own communities, in our own ahupua, we can get together, organize, and we can make a difference in protecting our ocean. That was Kipahulu Ohana Executive Director Scott Crawford talking with HPR's Lillian Song about the proposed Kipahulu community-based subsistence fishing area. Tonight's uh, public scoping session uh, runs from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. We'll have details on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR local reporting comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, working to create a movement through the change framework to help Hawaii communities solve challenges and thrive. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org slash change to join the movement. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, why are so many men choosing to skip college? Typical boy behavior doesn't fit as well with good student behavior. And why is overall college enrollment dropping? Hey, listen, I can invest in cryptocurrency. I can be an Instagram influencer. We conclude our series about the strange state of higher education. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. Recently, we shared a conversation with survival expert Les Shroud on tips on how to keep yourself safe while exploring Hawaii's wildlands. One listener called in to add his thoughts. This is Larry on the Big Island. The statement was made that we do not have large predators in Hawaii as regards survival. And that's untrue uh, in two contexts. One, uh, you have wild dogs and there is no control program for the wild dogs. And so their numbers are large and uh, they are very dangerous, something to keep in mind. In addition, at least on the big island, the wild peepee, the Vancouver bulls they call them, are essentially Mexican longhorns and they're extremely unfriendly. I spent two hours in a tree trying to avoid contact with one, and it was very murderous. Just thought that should be added to that portion. Thank you. Well, we are all glad that you made it out of that tree and made it down, Larry. Our favorite part of the show is when we get to hear from you, our listeners. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or give us a call on the talkback line, 808-792-8217.
Made in Hawaii. It's the latest collection of short stories by author Cedric Yamanaka. Longtime listeners may remember Yamanaka as a driving force between, uh, behind Aloha Shorts, which has been featured on HPR's Airwaves. Today we learn more about this homegrown author. We welcome Cedric Yamanaka. Full disclosure, I work with him as a fellow broadcast journalist at KITV. Yeah, thanks for having me, Catherine. I'm a little old to have a sophomore, but it's my second book. My first book, In Good Company, was published 20 years ago. My second book, Made in Hawaii, is just coming out this month. It's really a celebration of our lives here in Hawaii, having had the honor to host Aloha Shorts here at Hawaii Public Radio for so long. You see so much talent, whether it's the actors, actresses, musicians, writers. And, you know, this was a way to kind of pay tribute to all the great stories that we have surrounding us, talent we have surrounding us. So some of the very stories that we performed here at Hawaii Public Radio in the Atherton have made their way into Made in Hawaii, so hopefully folks can check it out. Now, you and I know each other because we work together out in the field yes. as uh, as journalists. So you had a stint, uh, gosh, for a decade and a half as our courts reporter. You also were the press secretary for uh, Governor Ben Cayetano, and you were also the communications uh, guy for a local hospital, uh, a bank, and, and you're at Queens now. I mean, so I guess pe- people are probably wondering, are any of the characters that you have in your stories modeled after those experiences? Yeah, I get that all the time. I think, uh, to be honest, not really. Um, because for me, and this is just me personally, I think that the experiences that I inhabit, whether it was as a journalist or in corporate communications, it takes me a while to digest all of that stuff. And at some point, I'm thinking that I'll be ready to write about whether it's the newsroom, whether it's corporate communications, I would love to do that at some point. But right now I'm kind of just still assimilating life as we know it in Kalihi, uh, folks growing up there, the stories we told, shared whether it was in garages, backyards, hanging out at the beach or the basketball court, just talking story. And these were kind of the inspiration for a lot of the pieces in Made in Hawaii. And you know, we often hear you write what you know. And you grew up in Kalihi, went to Farrington. And so you have, um, I think, you can share kind of a slice of life, you know, growing up in that community. Yeah, so the title uh, came to me because really I was born, made in Hawaii, and so were a lot of the stories. So the interesting things about the stories and how the compilation came together was really, these were stories that were published on the mainland in small literary magazines, whether it was in Michigan or California or other areas, but they had never been published here in Hawaii. And these were stories that were made in Hawaii. So I thought it'd be just great if we could compile these stories at some point, stories that had never been published in Hawaii, and kind of create like a homecoming. So really, this is kind of a homecoming for these stories. These are stories that have never really seen the light of day here, and hopefully the folks will uh, enjoy reading them. What is it about short stories that appeal to you? I mean, uh, I loved reading short stories, you know, in high school. And, um, you know, maybe that's why I chose a career path of broadcast journalism, because you're, you have to focus and you, you have to keep people's attention, you know, because you don't have much time. I mean, there are novels that, that, that you and I enjoy and are on the edge of our seats and you just want to finish it, you know, like whether it's a Harry Potter book or, or, or something, you know, uh, longer like uh, War and Peace, but short stories. So, so what is it that appeals to you? 
I have to give credit to my old college professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, Ian McMillan, because I took a fiction writing class with him and kind of fell in love with the art of short stories. He was very good at it, and we would hang out in his office in Kaikendo Hall on the fourth floor and just kind of talk, and I would give him some of my stories, and he'd kind of evaluate them. And what I noticed that he would do, this was back before email, so he would be stuffing envelopes full of his stories, his short stories, and sending them out to national publications. And I, as a young college student, never even imagined having stories about Hawaii be published nationally. But I kind of watched him do this, and, and he told me, hey, now that you've got some stories published here in Hawaii, you should think about branching out and sending some of your stories and sharing it with the rest of the world. So I, thanks to Ian, I followed in his footsteps. For every story that I got published on the continent, I, I got 150 rejections, but that's okay. That's part of the process. And thanks to Ian, fell in love with not only writing the short stories, but having them shared with larger audiences. Love the short story. It's something that you can read in, in an hour or so as opposed to a week or a month commitment. Totally respect novelists and working on one myself and gaining many gray hairs because of it. But yeah, I love the short story and, and really thanks to Ian for all of his guidance. What was it like when you got your first acceptance letter? That's a great question, Catherine, because I think about it every day. And really, my first acceptance letter was from Boston University, I think. I mean, that changed my life. I was working at the University of Hawaii as a senior, and one of the folks in the office said, hey, you got a call from Boston University. I couldn't believe it, right? So I picked up the phone, and it was uh, Leslie Epstein, who was the director of creative writing, and I believe still is, at Boston University. And he said that he was able to offer me something called the Helen Deutsch Fellowship to attend Boston University. So as a kid from Kalihi, there was no way I would have been able to afford that. But thanks to the Helen Deutsch Fellowship in Boston University, I was able to fly up there and get my education. Now, a little known fact that's kind of interesting is Helen Deutsch, I wondered who she was who had endowed this fellowship. So she was the screenwriter for a movie called National Velvet way back yes, in the day. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And so that was the springboard for a young actress named Elizabeth Taylor. I think it might have been her first movie. So Cedric Yamanaka and Elizabeth Taylor, not often mentioned in the same sentence, <laughs> but there is kind of a little connection there. So thanks to BU for all their support, too. And so actually getting one of your stories published, I mean, did that happen uh, when you went to BU, or did you have something published when you were attending University of Hawaii? Yeah, so th that's taking me a ways back. But my first story that I ever published was here locally in a small newsletter magazine called Kahuliao, little known magazine, and this was back in the probably the late 80s, and it was called The House on Eleva Heights. And this story is revolves around three Farrington kids growing up and trying to decide what they want to do with their lives. I wrote The House on Eleva Heights, my first story, and it won second prize in their fiction contest, got published, and 500 years later, it's actually in Made in Hawaii, the collection that's just coming out now. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I recall that one of your stories got turned into a film. Yeah. <laughs> I have visions of Meg's drive-in. Yes, yes. 
I have been really lucky. We've actually had three stories from In Good Company, my first book made into short films by Hawaii production companies. So the first one was The Lemon Tree Billiards House, which starred a great, great cast, Ray Bumatai, James Grant Benton. And actually one of the treats was having Ray Bumatai come here to the Atherton and read from The Lemon Tree Billiards House during Aloha Shorts. That was awesome. The second one was Meg's Drive, and it was starring Augie T. Untypecast in a serious role. He did a great job. This was about a group of folks working in a drive-in restaurant, just trying to find better lives for themselves and rebelling against the angry management team that they had to deal with. The third one, and the last one, was uh, One Evening in the Blue Light Bar and Grill, which was a fun movie that we shot in a bar in Chinatown. I, I, the name of the bar escapes me, but really a fun piece. So really lucky. You know, when when you see these actors, actresses, and these production teams come in and take your story and adopt it to film, you know, it's kind of like being in that newsroom where you see that energy, where everybody wants to put out the best product possible. And they breathe new life into these stories. And the way that they take these stories and make it their own is just totally awesome. One of the greatest experiences, really. Yeah, so I stand corrected. Not one of your stories, but three of your stories. Very lucky, <laughs> yeah. And so, um, gosh, you think there's that uh, possibility for one of the short stories in Made in Hawaii as well? Yeah, you know, I think uh, as, as I get older and, you know, maybe it's through journalism and those years, but you start writing and you start seeing visions in your mind like a cinematographer. And so I think that there's a few stories in Made in Hawaii that I think would be really fun to be turned into films. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I got a bunch. So I think if you look at the collection, I really like the first story, the undertow story about the impact on a family after their mom takes their kids on a reef walk and loses her life in an accident and how that impacted her family. So that one is kind of sad. But then there's a fun one called Tending Bar at the Happy Parrot Restaurant about a bartender in a Chinese restaurant wearing a red tuxedo whose real dream is to become the next Jet Li. So he's working behind the bar, serving up beers, while in the back of his mind, he thinks that he can be starring in the next big production. In comes the star of the day, the Jet Li of our time, to come in, and he's hoping that that will lead to a break. And so, you know, you asked me about if there's a theme, a recurring theme in these nine or 10 stories. There is, actually, I thought about it. The theme is really about folks trying to make a better life for themselves. I think in about um, the majority of the stories, everyone to a T involves somebody that's looking for something else, somebody that wants to just add heroism and excitement and glamour to their lives, working hard to make ends meet, but still looking for that extra something. And I think you'll see that in most of those stories. Okay. Made in Hawaii, Cedric Yamanaka, in bookstores and libraries now. <laughs> yep. Go check it out, please. All right. Thanks so much, Cedric. That was Cedric Yamanaka, whose second book, Made in Hawaii, was just released. That does it for us today. Tomorrow, we get the view from the ring with Hall of Fame wrestler Carissa Chung. Got feedback? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.